0: So, uh, listen, uh, we are um, in a series called From the Brink, and, and really what we're looking at is what does it look like when our lives kind of teeter on the edge, when we feel like if we get pushed one way, we may fall, or the other way, we, we kind of... Uh, escape some sort of, of major catastrophe. I don't know how many of you live kind of like on the edge. You're kind of teetering one way or the other. Uh, you find yourself going, you know, I, if, I, if I really thought about it, I would be scared for myself. Uh, but here's the thing, we all kind of had these things in our life that we, that we go back and forth. And, and last week we talked about being cynical and how cynic, cynicism just kind of grows up in us. It's not something that we choose. It's not something that we go, you know what? One day I want to wake up and be the most bitter and ugly and harsh person that has ever walked the face of this planet. No one wants that. You don't grow up thinking as a little kid that's kind of the person you're going to be. I mean, uh, you're not practicing uh, yelling at kids to get off your lawn when you're three. I mean, it's just not anything that you're doing. In fact, when you think about your future, you think about, I'm going to be that person. I'm wearing tennis shoes. It's getting me a little off today. Um, I want to be that person that, uh, that people see and they're so happy to see them. They, they they want to see you show up. And in fact, they say, you know what? That person, you couldn't find a finer person. And that's really kind of the way that we want to be described. But... There's another thing at play. As we think about what does it look like in a life that's kind of kind of teetering on the edge of, of really what's called burnout. You know, think about how you walk through your life and how, how uh, in the past few years things have just changed so significantly. And it seems like pressure has just continued to mount and mount and mount. And you're always on. You're never off. And things are just so extremely Difficult, and every decision seems as though it is the last decision that you're going to make before everything blows up. Anyone there? Anyone feel that pressure? I tell you what, right now, I mean, kids, uh, they're in a, this environment where they feel that since all they're doing is being prepared to take a test, that if they mess that test up, they've messed up their lives. And I don't know about you but I have never been one to think that a test was something that defined me. But that's what we're teaching our children. Another thing that we teach our children is that, uh, especially from a very young age, is that compromise is a good thing. Well, we think it is. Because compromise between fighting siblings choosing what game to play and who gets to go first and and all of those things. Compromise is a good thing. What game to play, where we're going to eat, who gets to eat the bigger piece, right? And we talk about compromise is a great thing between spouses, right? Because somebody has to control the remote, right? And that person that controls the remote then has to put it on the DIY channel watching some sort of a house rehab thing, right? It's kind of how I let you push the buttons, I pick the show, right? That's kind of the way that it goes. And, and you have compromise, in where do we spend our time in the holidays? Which in-law do we stay with? In fact, early on in our marriage, Melanie helped me to make this really good compromise with her. Um, she only asked for two holidays with her family, and I get all the rest of them she only wanted two, and there's like, there's like Flag Day. There's, there's things like, uh, you know, Labor Day. She just wanted two. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, she's so giving. <laughs> in some areas of life, compromise is good. In some areas of life, compromise is good, but in other areas, it's not there was this family. There was this family, and they were new to, uh, new to ranching. They moved from somewhere up north, and they came down, uh, and they set up themselves a farm. And they came out west to become cattle ranchers, to, to live off the land, and to be really, uh, really uh, these cattle magnates. They had some friends that came down, and they, they visited them uh, soon after they got there. And they said, hey, listen, I'm curious. I'm curious. What is the name of your ranch? Well, the rancher replies, Well, listen, I, w- I wanted Bar J. Now, my wife, she wanted Susie Q. One of my sons wanted Flying W, and the other wanted Lazy Y. So, we're calling the ranch the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y Ranch. And the friend says, Wow, that's a lot of a name. So, I'm curious, though, where are your cattle? The rancher replies, none of them survived the branding. (laughs) And that's kind of how we do things, right? Listen, when we think, listen, if we live in a life, if we live a life that does not compromise 99% of the time, listen, if I can be 99% good and not compromise and only have 1% that is, I'm doing great. Listen, that means only 15 minutes a day. Only 15 minutes a day, I'm not compromising. Think about it in this way. If, if you have, if you have um, 99% of the time, if you have good, clean drinking water, you only have three and a half days a year where you're drinking stuff that's not fit to drink. But what I'd like to talk to you today, though, is about the story of two different sons. Two different sons, and we're going to begin first in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 24, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So if you're the kind of people that need to flip back and forth and do those things, I wanted to give you the heads up. Second Chronicles chapter 24, starting in verse one. Now Joash, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Now, in the Old Testament, we see when we're talking about the kings and you're reading through all of these accounts of the kings, there's going to be good kings and there's going to be bad kings. There's going to be kings that honored the Lord and kings that did not. There's going to be kings that started out good and then turned out bad and so on. And and that's just the way that it goes. So Joash was seven years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And I'm thinking, if I was Joash, I'd almost be done with my reign. Now, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a very important thing to understand, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada. That is, Joash had a godly advisor. Jehoiada got for Joash two wives, and he had sons, and he had daughters. So as Joash grew up a little bit more and became a man, jo- Jehoiada got him some wives. He helped him to pick some wives, and he became then this responsible man that had a family. And all of a sudden, he wasn't this little boy. He had A legacy. Scripture continues after this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. In fact, Joash instructed the people to follow God while he was under the mentorship of Jehoiada. Now, now that meant that they were bringing in offerings. They were bringing in all manner of things. They, and, and as they continued to do that, they rebuilt the temple of the Lord. It's an amazing account. You can read it there in the, in the verses of the Scripture. But you get down to verse 14. They offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly. All the days of Jehoiada. Are you sensing a theme there? But Jehoiada grew old. He grew full of days and he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came, and they paid homage to the king. So all these young princes came, and they paid homage to Joash, and, and they came, and they found this opening, because no longer was Jehoiada the one that was, had the king's ear. In fact, they saw an opportunity to come in and kind of get their spot in line. They saw that opening to get Joash to fit their desires. And you know what happened? Over time, their influence, it reigned. And the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, who served the asherim and idols. And you know what happened? The people of God followed suit. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them. God sent prophets among them to bring them back. He said, even in your rebellion, God was calling them back to himself. And the prophets, they testified against them. But they wouldn't pay attention. That's son number one. So let's take a look at the other son. We're going to find that in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament. And it's something that's probably pretty familiar to you. Luke chapter 15 It's the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Now this man, he was a wealthy man. He had land, he had great success, and he had taught his sons how to live godly lives, just as Joash had been taught how to live a godly life under Jehoiada. This man taught his sons and he taught them how to live a godly life and gave them good instruction. They were cared for. They were protected. They were provided for by their father. But one day, the younger of them said to his father, Hey, father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. He decided to go out on his own. Now, I know oftentimes we paint this picture as one that is one of rebellion, that all of a sudden he says, I'm done with this place. Give me what's coming to me, and I'm out of here. But I think this young man probably saw an opportunity to go and make it out on his own, to have these high hopes, these dreams determined that he would make even a greater life than what his father had. And so the father divided the property between them, and not many days after that, after the young man had made a plan the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country he left to become what he dreamt he would become now i don't know how many of you took off uh, on life after you graduated from high school and you said i'm going to put on my backpack of all my hopes and my dreams and i'm going out to this great big wide world and i'm going to do better than ever imagined but here's something that happened over time. Over time, he fell to the allure of the culture and the people that were around him. And he lacked the accountability and the mentorship and the, and the wisdom that had come from his father. And we find out that it's there that he squandered his property in reckless living. It all started so small, and I mean, and really when you think about it, what, what does it really hurt to splurge every now and again, right? Every now and again, what's the, what's the big deal? No big deal, right? One small bad decision, really not that bad, but one splurge, one bad decision led to another, and yet another and he was, he was so sure that maybe this next time, it would be the strike it rich time that finally everything would bust open and he would get it because the guy that he talked to said it was a sure bet, a 50% return. Sure bet. But see, here's the problem. In all things that are compromised, it chips away at your character. Because you start believing things that look like half truths. You start believing things that are almost right. You feel the pressure. You you feel the pressure to protect that image that you project. How many of you, when someone asks you a question, have lied through your teeth? Some brave soul said, Yes, I've lied. All of you have lied. Come on now. Everyone in here has lied, but and I'll tell you another thing: every one of us in here has lied to protect our image, haven't we? Because over time, we begin to want to project to be someone that we're not, and it begins to look like this compromise on our on our character begins to look look like hiding. And and, and maybe it's not something that we're hiding from personally as far as what people see. But, you know, we get all that mail in. There's a stack of mail. And if I don't open the bill, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it's not real. (laughs) Compromise. It comes when we have this, this greater desire to be known, this greater desire to be wanted and needed. And so we begin to compromise with the things that we do or the things that we say or what we wear or the places that we go. And we find ourselves going and doing those things to find this temporary feeling of acceptance, contentment, and fulfillment. Compromise, it looks like subtle things and small things over time. Now listen, I'm not saying that you've sold your soul, but there's a very good possibility that you've rented it to anyone who would pay. So what does it look like? What does it look like when you're in this battle and you don't want to lose the battle of your character to compromise? Because compromise, it erodes our character. How do you know that that's happening in your life? It's when there's a growing gap between your public and your private life. When your outward projection does not not accurately reflect what's going on inwardly, there's a gap between the things that you say and who you truly are. You may be a person that talks about grace and talks about love and talks about encouraging and accepting. But, but to, be, to be quite honest, you're the first and the quickest one to snap at your family. To talk about your co-workers behind their back. You speak of finances and you speak about the importance of good finances when yours are a mess. You may say that people matter. You may say that they matter, but you make absolutely zero time for people who are in need. Do you know what you call that when you see it in someone else? Hypocrisy. And we hate it in others. But we always have a good reason, right? So we hide things, and we push things away, and the gap begins To widen. And we don't want other people to know the truth because tomorrow, tomorrow I'll do better. Tomorrow I'll make things right. I'll make amends. I'll repent. I'll have a new life. I'll do all these things tomorrow. And we find out that tomorrow seldom comes. And and so instead, we tell the accountant then to fudge a few numbers. We make up a few stories to conceal the facts of what we've been up to. We mislead. We misinform. And in the end, we become ashamed of the person that we've become. And then we fail to follow through on what we've said. We commit to things that we don't end up doing, we miss deadlines the stuff that we, that we miss, the things that we say, you know what, it's really no big deal. And then we learn how to justify our bad decisions. You know what happens if we continue to justify our bad decisions over time? We stop apologizing. We just stop completely. And we say, you know what, everyone does it this way. It's no big deal. Listen, distance happens in relationships. It happens to all couples and then we become more grumpy and more easily irritated. And then we start to believe the way that we behave. you Listen, it's just the way I was made. It's well beyond my control. And you tell others that if they were in your shoes, if they knew what you knew, they'd have done the exact same thing. Do you know what happens? our lives become all about us eventually everything is about us but i'll tell you any value system that is worth its salt focuses on other people not on its on yourself people people take time they take energy they take they take attention people take love And to tell you the truth, we feel like we have absolutely no energy for that. So what do you do when everything is all about you? Well, it seems like you've moved from renting your soul to establishing a long-term lease. But at some point... But at some point, hopefully, hopefully at some point, there's this moment, this moment where you kind of push back and you have this moment of realization. And for our friend Joash, he had this following encounter. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. God sent the prophets, but they didn't listen. So God then rose up Zechariah the son of, of the son of Jehoiada, his trusted advisor, the son of the man that grew him into a man. And he sent him, rose him up. Surely, surely Joash would listen to this young man. Surely the people of God will hear what they say. And Zechariah stood above the people, and he said to them, thus says God, when you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper, because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And the people fail, fell to their face, and they repented, and the whole nation came back, and, and they loved, that is not what happened. But it says they conspired against him. Zechariah, oh, I knew Zechariah when he was this big. Who is he to talk about about what God wants from us? Surely, if he knew what was going on, if he had heard what's going on with these other princes of Judah, he would have made the same decision. But they conspired against him. And by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones. In the court of the house of the Lord. Oh. Have you ever been stoned with stones in the house of the Lord? Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada. Zechariah's father had shown him, but he killed his son. The compromise for Joash hardened his heart so greatly that he murdered the son of his mentor. He murdered the son of his advisor, the priest. And we need to look at this realization For the son, that he had such a hard heart that he no longer heard the caution that comes straight from the mouth of God. So then we flip over and we look in Luke chapter 15. What's going on with this prodigal son? At that moment where he had squandered his earnings, well, his inheritance, when he had spent everything that he had, when he had, had kind of scrounged and looked under the couch cushions, right? And he had looked for every bit of money, and on top of that, he had, he had spent it all, and then there was famine that arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So what did he do? he went out and he hired him, himself out to one of the citizens of that country. He said, you know what? I don't have my trust fund anymore, so I better go get a job. And so this man sent him out into the field to feed pigs. And, and there's so much in that, just understanding what that means, but that's for another time. And at that moment, as he went out in the field to feed the pigs, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. I don't know if you know what pigs eat, but they don't eat stuff that I would eat. So imagine him there among the pigs, hungry. Maybe as he's putting out the feed and comes across a trough and looks down and sees his reflection, and he does not recognize the man that that is reflecting back in that water towards him. And he's at this spot where he goes, Now what? Scripture says that no one gave him anything. And as his mind wandered and he began to be more and more hungry and more and more desperate, his mind began to wander. Then he began to wonder, maybe. Maybe, just just maybe. Maybe. But when he came to himself, the Scripture says, he said, when he when he snapped to his senses, when he when he kind of got this moment of realization, he began to think through and began to rehearse his way back home. He said, How many of my fathers, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I know what I gotta do. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and before you, and I am no no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So we have one man who had such a hardened heart and compromised so much and in, in an effort to, co- to cover his compromised soul, killed another person. But the other one, who compromised so much, he prepared an apology. So how did it all come out? So for Joash, at the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came and they came up against Judah, against Joash, and they, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed everyone who had been speaking into his ear, all the princes of, of the people from among the people. And they sent everything. They 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 looted the city. They took every rich. They took everything that wasn't nailed down, and they took it and they gave it to the king of Damascus. And though old, this army of the Syrians had come with just a few men, a very small army, a small army defeated a very large one. The Lord delivered into their hand a very great army. So the Syrians, small in number, took down the great army of Israel, all because they had forsaken the Lord. Because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus, they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded. They didn't just go outright and kill Joash. Instead, they left him writhing in pain, watching his kingdom torn from his hands. And what do you do when you're severely wounded and feel like you've been left for dead? Well, you go to bed, right? His servants, though, conspired against him because of the blood of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. And they killed him in his bed. They avenged the blood of Zechariah. And so he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. At the end of his life, He did not not rest in the tombs of, of honor, that his mentor, who was not a king, was placed to rest. At the end of his days, he wasn't buried with honor. So what about the prodigal son? Well, he arose, he got up, and he, and, he, and he came to his father. He got up, and, and no doubt, as he was going, he was, he was rehearsing the speech, and, you know, father, 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 dad, just whatever, you know? And, and just going and, and fumbling over his words and rehearsing it and making grand motions and, and doing all of those things. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. The father dropped absolutely everything and ran to receive his son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, he said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. His father clothed him replaced his ragged, worn-out clothing, and he put a ring on his hand and, and, sand, and shoes on his feet. He restored him back into the family, and he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. He celebrated the return of his son. For this son of mine was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. So why was there such a big difference between these two men in the end? Both knew the Lord. Both had lives that were well provided for, but went another direction and lost themselves. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to destruction. To life and those who find it are few. Compromise is an easy way to break away and erode our character. Small and seemingly innocent choices and decisions and indiscretions that kind of corrode and and chip away at our souls. On the other side of knowing Jesus, that is, after you've accepted Jesus as Savior, after you've trusted him with your heart and your life, there's a different life that he's calling you to. I've told you many times over that trusting Jesus is the starting point. It is not the finish line. There is a life that he calls you to, a transformation, a reshaping, a renewal, a restoration of the life that God has for you. A reshaped life that is found by trusting God, by trusting our character, our decisions, our very lives to God. The, road is na- the ro- narrow road is about claiming this new life about becoming a new creation in Christ about chiseling and shaping our soul into the transformative image of Jesus that our heart our mind our the way that we think the things that we do would be just like that of Christ being made into the reflection of Jesus once you accept Jesus God in effect says okay let's get started The life that God is calling you to is a transformation from the inside out. We can doll ourselves up on the outside and look all perfect and put together, but if we are not being affected on the inside and that permeating through every thought, every action, every reaction, if we don't try to walk through the narrow gate, Jesus says this gate, this gate that you walk through that is only through me, may be narrow. And it may be difficult, but that change is absolutely worth it. But this may be why you meet so many Christians who don't look anything like Jesus. They probably are Christians. But they've not found their way to walking the narrow path. The path that leads to life. They still hate. They still judge. That road is hard. But the narrow road, the narrow road, if you choose it, if you go on the the road that Jesus calls you to, you're going to stop compromising. The outside will begin to look like what's going on on the inside, and there's no need to hide anymore. Your yes is equals a yes, and your no equals a no. And I'll tell you right now that it's a lifelong journey. So how do we get started? The first thing you do is take responsibility. Take responsibility. It's easier to blame other people than to take ownership. But be honest with yourself. Own your own junk. Offload your baggage. Seek A counselor, spend time getting your thoughts, your life, your choices, your decision-making in order. Work hard on your character. Don't sell your character for something cheap. Make your walk match your talk. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with others. Do whatever it takes to be honest, even if it makes you look bad. Listen, if if you don't intend on meeting somebody for lunch, don't tell them you will. Keep your word, even if it makes you look bad. If you make a boneheaded decision, don't pretend it wasn't boneheaded. Be honest. Above all, be sincere. Own your stuff. And I'll say it again. If you need counseling, get counseling. There's no shame in that. In fact, there's strength in it. Make personal growth your number one priority. Be intentional on making yourself better. Spend time with God. Increase in prayer time with God. Do it every single day. Develop a a response and a lifestyle and a character of integrity. One that has honor. Study the word. Seek out a mentor. Investing in your character and your integrity is not only an investment for yourself, but it's an investment for your family and for your friends. Make a plan to grow in your walk with God. If you don't plan it, it probably doesn't happen, right? Make a plan to grow in your walk with God. Be intentional. Schedule it. Follow the schedule. Do it every single day. Because in the end, the only one that stands and hold is held accountable for who you've been, what you've done, and how you use the life that Christ had given you. Well, it's not me. I'm only accountable for me. And you? Well, you're accountable for you. So invest in your character. Invest in your integrity. Your family, your friends, your future, they depend on it.